Good evening, everyone. I want to join in welcoming you to the study of the evening. As always, it's my desire and prayer. Don't know which of these is working. How's that? Okay. It's my desire and prayer that we we take a look at God's Word tonight, that we represent what He is giving us rightly, and that we take it and apply it and are changed by it to use it exactly as he'd have us do. Uh, as Brother Franklin mentioned, this is chapter 22. It's a continuation of chapter 22 from uh, last week. Unfortunately, I was on the road and I failed to uh, watch the, the portion right before mine, uh, as happens before. But uh, I will do a little bit of a, kind of a synopsis of what's going on before our text tonight. Uh, with the assumption that Ian probably covered it very, very well. So, we'll be doing chapter 22, verses 23 through the end. And um, leading up to these events, Jesus comes in, riding on the donkey in the the way that was prophesied, starts throwing tables upside down, causing a big stir, speaking in parables, and it doesn't take very long for the Pharisees and Sadducees realize, wait a minute, he's talking about us. And... uh, that goes on for a pretty short while before they decide, okay, this has to stop. They got to do something about it. And uh, one more parable into into Ian's half of it, and then they say, well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna catch him. We're gonna trick him. We're gonna get him caught up in all these talkings because he's talking an awful lot, and they don't like it. And so they're gonna use their awesome wisdom and knowledge of the word and go in there and try to try to do some trick questioning of Jesus, and it just doesn't pan out. Spoiler alert. So uh, we'll just jump right in here and read this, uh, this kind of trap that the, the Sadducees come at him with. Uh, starting in verse 23, it says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies... Having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. There's Ian. Welcome back. Now, I'm not real... I'm sorry, I've got a terrible echo up here. Is it back there? Maybe I could just get a little bit further away from it. Better? I'm not real well studied on the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees to explain it uh, in, in their beliefs in great detail, but I think I can generalize it in a few words. You know, we talk about the Jews in general, and we all understand that they're God's chosen people. We've all studied the that lineage of, of so many of these important Jews that led to Jesus. And we also know that it was the Jews that rejected Jesus and rejected the notion that he was the Messiah, and they cru- crucified him ultimately. But just like any other kind of nationality or, or group of people, they have their own differences. Uh, so you see these classes called sects, and that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two of them, two of these sects. 
or like-minded groups among the Jews. Now, in general, the Jews loved and feared God and believed him, followed his word. But just like Christians today, there's some that know and understand the word more thoroughly, and they take this role of, of leadership and teaching in the faith. Well, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they, they were these guys. They were the thought leaders. Jesus, he wasn't the Messiah that they had imagined. So they're trying to discredit him here and ultimately influence enough people to have him crucified. Now, ideologically, these two groups, they were pretty similar up to a point, but there was a significant difference beyond that point. The Sadducees recognized only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, as the true word of God. In the Torah, it's not explicitly told that after death, our souls will live on and either go to heaven or hell. They reject the idea that anything happens after death. They said there is no soul, there's no heaven, no hell, no angels. If it wasn't written in the law in those first five books, it was nothing to them. Now, considering the fact that the Sadducees believe there is no life after death, resurrection is just flat out rejected by them. We know that God can raise the dead to life, in the flesh even, like Lazarus. We also know that the resurrection refers to our souls living on after our earthly bodies are gone. I'm not sure the Sadducees really saw a difference in, in either sort of resurrection, the heavenly sort or the zombie sort. So they pose this ridiculously hypothetical question. Everyone knew how they felt about it. Obviously, Jesus knew, and not only did he know how they felt about it, he knew what they were trying to do with this question. They are very clearly, it's this group of people, they say there is no resurrection. Now, I don't think the term passive-aggressive was really a thing back then. But these guys are addressing Jesus as teacher. Not rabbi, not lord, not son of David. Now, to call someone teacher is to say that they have knowledge to give. It's to say that they're an expert on the subject. To be a teacher is probably one of the most important roles in the history of man. You know, without sharing our knowledge, we don't advance as a society. To be a teacher is to be elevated above the students. The problem here is that they did not believe Jesus could teach them anything that was true or that they didn't already know. It kind of reminds me of... Uh, I was in college, and I took this chemistry class. It was the hardest class that I was awake for. I cannot remember the name of the teacher, but his name was in the textbook right alongside his picture because he wrote it. He looked like Albert Einstein, by the way. It was a funny picture. To say that he knew the material was an understatement. He literally wrote the book. He was a teacher, but that's also an understatement. In fact, it probably wouldn't be showing him the due respect to say, hey, teacher, What's this chemistry problem? I don't understand it. He was a professor. Or he might have been a, a doctor. I, I really can't remember. But I think you see my point. Jesus was indeed a teacher. But when these guys say it, coming from their point of view, it's a passive-aggressive slight. That's all they're doing when they, when they call him teacher. <clears throat> of course, a lot of people see him coming in on the donkey believe he's a prophet at least and they fear that you know if they don't at least kind of feign a little bit of reverence to him that there could be an uprising from the people but they didn't really uh mean him any respect by calling him teacher now that trick question that they posed was based in deuteronomy 25 
<clears throat> as I'm sure you know, one of the most important things to the Jews is their lineage. It's a status symbol. A great care was taken to document it all. Um, another interesting story I recently learned. One of the guys I do business with, one of our vendors, he's what you'd call a professional hobbyist when it comes to tracing a family tree. Now, he's a Mormon, and I didn't know this, but apparently that's the thing that, that Mormons do. They're, they're very into that. Well, it was really fascinating to hear you know, what he knows. He recently traveled all the way to Abu Dhabi to certify some guy's lineage back to Moses. They stop there because it gets problematic for the Arabs because there's conflict of religious beliefs. Uh, so they don't go any further back than that. Well, <clears throat> anyway, a coworker of mine has this old family tree. And th so this discussion came up, and this family tree was like this heirloom created by some company in Europe like maybe a couple hundred years ago. I don't know, great-great-great-grandfather or something. And it traces his family back to royalty. Well, that's the class of people. That's the kind of people that took care to trace their lineages because it was important to put them in their place. And so this, this kind of pro-hobbyist family tree guy was able to take this and using his tools of the trade or whatever, he was able to trace my coworker back to King Solomon. Some uncertifiable connections. But... He showed us the stuff, and we were, we were fascinated. Anyway, that's fascinating, and to them, it was extremely important. So important that we find it written in the Old Testament that a, window has a, a widow has a pretty strange obligation. So let's read Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It says, if, a brother, if brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall, be, shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Big deal. Family tree. Now, it was so serious that they even had a means of dealing with it in writing if there should be any younger brother that doesn't want to marry his dead brother's wife. Which, that's weird just to read out loud. And this might strike you as funny, but the point is that public shaming was a very serious thing. So it goes on to say there in, in verse 7, if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall com come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. I can't imagine family dinners in that house. But this lineage thing, it's a really big deal. So that takes us back to our text and this ridiculous, crazy question of seven brothers and the wife. We can see that this is grounded in a potentially real situation. It's basically a lawsuit. They even throw in this complication that none of the husbands ever having fathered a child with her. So you can't take the easy answer and say, well, that guy that had the kid, that's the one that she would be wife to in, in the resurrection. That's not, they're trying to really, you know, put the icing on the cake there with that. 
The problem is that what is written in Deuteronomy is not relevant at all to the resurrection. They are mocking the resurrection by pretending people will return to life as it was before they died, in which case, I guess you probably would have to sort something like this out. Maybe they do think that such a resurrection, which they don't believe in, would be like returning to life. Uh, so they're saying that this is a ridiculous thing to be, and here's an example how it just wouldn't work out. And It's just, it's just being argumentative, and it's, it's totally, the, the, totally missed the whole concept of it, the whole what, what the resurrection is. And I'm sure it was very frustrating to Jesus to have this crazy question posed to him, but of course, he's able to answer it in the perfect way. Uh, <clears throat> verse 29 says, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. We know our souls will live on, but it's not the same as our lives right now. I mean, that's, honestly, that's one of the benefits. No back pain, right? No sickness, no sorrow, no brothers bickering over a wife. Now, Jesus does something interesting here. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but they also didn't believe in angels. He knows they base the question off of Scripture, but he tells them that they don't know the scripture, nor do they know the power of God. He tells them the question is ridiculous by explaining that we'll be like angels. But he knows it was ridiculous on purpose, and he knows they don't believe in resurrection. He knows they don't believe in angels. So he's proclaiming to them that angels exist while showing them that the resurrection is real by making it clear that within that portion of the scripture that they do adhere to, that they do believe, that God tells us, there is life after death. He cites what they most certainly have read, which is the recording of God telling Moses that he is, not that he was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're dead. They're gone. But he's still their God, and he is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They exist. Uh, Jesus is referring to Exodus 3 here when he says that. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro and his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led to the flock the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame from fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses, only now realizing who's speaking to him, hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. They know this account. They know exactly what God said. When the multitudes heard this, 
back to our text here. They were astonished at his teaching. <clears throat> Everyone around, multitudes, literally, of people, saw this trick question. In fact, that was their purpose. They were trying to catch Jesus and embarrass him in front of everybody that was pretty impressed by him coming in there and, and starting to speak in the parables. So everyone around saw the question that the Sadducees posed. The Sadducees who knew the law down to the letter, they knew that this question was a sham. They saw that this question was a sham. Well, what was the impact of that? It, for one, is not refuted because they knew Jesus was right about what he had said, about what the Bible said, what the Word said. And suddenly an entire belief system is broken. They believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no resurrection because it isn't written in the Torah. Well, if that's true, then why does God refer to these Jewish fathers who've long since died as in a state of being, as God being still right now their God? Have you ever been in an argument, you suddenly realize you're wrong, and anything else you say is only going to dig you deeper? You get a little bit quieter. Got nothing. That's what happened. <laughs> now, verse 34. But when the Pharisees, so the Sadducees got their peace, they got shut down. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So they came together and started conspiring. They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him, asked Jesus a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Lawyer there uh, is referred to as a scribe in, in some translations. We remember this verse from this interaction and, and other New Testament accounts of it. But Jesus, again, is citing Deuteronomy here. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And it's Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I'm not intending to, to jump over to Mark's account in this interaction, but I find it interesting that Mark records the response of the scribe. There's a, just a little bit more detail. Uh, this is found in Mark 12. Verse 28 through 34. And that says, uh, again, kind of going back to the start of the question. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them, an answered them well. So he, the, the scribe heard this answer, uh, said, okay, that was the right answer. Um, so, so he goes to him and asks, which is the first commandment of them all? Which is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered him, this is the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. So Mark records the same response, uh, but the scribe replies, and Mark records that as well. <clears throat> And it says in verse 32, so the scribe says to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Now, I don't know what the answer that they hoped Jesus would give them was so that they could do some sort of ha, I got you thing. I don't know what they were expecting out of that. Uh, but apparently the leadership of the time, they often debated which commandment was the greatest. This, this was the thing they talked about. Um, and it, I don't know why, but I know that they, they always like to compare themselves uh, amongst other people and, and see how great they are. Uh, and if they could justify a claim of being holier than someone else, then it, it's going to be based on their adherence to the law. And if they were all pretty good at it, uh, then maybe they would try to make some claims of being better than others because of how much they dedicate themselves to the most important part of the law. And that's where some de- something comes in that's debatable. You know, they're arguing which one's more important. So if Jesus had picked some act or ritual like tithing or whatever that they're very careful to do, well, then that's something they could, they could compare themselves to him, and they would have something to, to argue and, and kind of place themselves higher than him on. But he answered wisely, of course. Even those who live to argue can't argue with this. Knowing that Jesus knows our hearts and our minds, I, I have to wonder what this scribe felt in his heart and thought in his mind when Jesus answered this. Whatever it was, it led him to agree with Jesus, And that led Jesus to say something else for them to think about. Verse 34, Jesus responds to the scribe's response by saying, Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So that's got to be pretty stirring. I wonder if it shook that scribe's belief in that Jesus wasn't the real deal. He believed that Jesus was not the real deal. I wonder if that started to crack right there. They tried to catch him with trick questions. That backfired. Then this guy is now agreeing with what Jesus is saying, which is more than just backing down and keeping your mouth shut. That's not just losing the argument. That's, that's turning around on it. So I wonder if he was at a turning point. And I wonder if getting told that you're not far off, but not quite there yet, by the one that they can't seem to disprove was enough to convince him. But at least they learned that the trick question game wasn't working out for them. So coming back to Matthew, Jesus takes a turn at asking some tough questions now. In verse 41, he says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, what, from what lineage is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This is Psalm 110, written by David, that Jesus is citing. And in English it gets a little muddy using the term Lord twice. So Lord said to my Lord. Um, But I found... In the Jewish Orthodox Bible, the second use of Lord there is Adoni. Um, the first one is Yehovah, the Jewish name for God. And then uh, the, the second one there, H113 in the Strong's, is Adon, I, I think. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it means Lord or Master or King. And it says also names beginning with Adoni. But if you look in that 
Jewish Orthodox text. That's the name that's used. What David is saying here is that this is God's direct message to his king, to David's king. The Pharisees believe that David wrote the psalm. They believe that he was divinely inspired. And when he's talking about king here, Adoni, um, that second lord, he's referring to the Messiah. This is understood by them. In other words, David writes of God telling Jesus to sit at his right hand. Now, I quickly found that a, a study of Psalm 110 goes really, really deep. Uh, the Jews obviously did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but I don't know if they understood him to be of the lineage of David or not. They maybe have been trying to feel that out. They did understand that the Messiah would be of the son of would be the son of David, or down the line from David. So, regardless of their disbelief that Jesus was that son, he hit them with a question they didn't like. They didn't want to admit that David's Lord was both king and his son. It really threw them for a loop. I could read that ten times and still not quite grasp what's going on there, but it shook them. They were looking for a gotcha. Well, they found one. It just didn't go the way they thought. My favorite verse in this chapter is verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. So back to the, the, the pretext of this, the chapter before, and he's coming in and making a big stir, and they're all getting, they're getting worried about the things he's saying, and they decide they've got to take him down. This all escalates really quick, and it didn't take very long before they realized we can't do that. We can't shut this down. We got nothing on him. Now, I guess shutting him down like that sealed his fate. They couldn't debunk him, so they're just going to have to kill him. That's a pretty bold move. Um, but it only worked because that was God's plan, of course. Now, there's plenty of wisdom and lessons to be taken away from, from all of Jesus' teachings. In this chapter, we get to see what would have been the best of the best among the Jewish righteous people attempt to discredit him and to prove themselves to be the ones with all the answers. What they got was an embarrassment, and I can relate to that. It's embarrassing to fight for something that you passionately believe, to, to stand firm, to be stubborn, bullheaded about it, and then eventually get crushed to the point of you, just, you got nothing, you're out. The bottom line is that you're wasting your time to resist the truth. I mean, the evidence is irrefutable. The things just weren't what these guys thought they should be, but they were too hard-headed to give in. And what you need to do is remove yourself from passion and emotion and look at facts. If you don't know the facts, you've got to educate yourself. If you do know the facts, why would you resist them anyway? And if it's not very clear, I'm talking about obeying the gospel. If you know what you need to do, if you understand the call, if you understand obeying what Jesus asks us to do, to resist that, for whatever reason, to wait, it's just being hard-headed. It's just being stubborn. You, it's, you can't get around the facts. If you don't know the facts, if you need to know about the call and about salvation and baptism and accepting Jesus' salvation, then, then we need to help you do that. And this is the invitation.
if you are already there, but if there's anything, prayer, help with being stubborn, anything that the church can do for you, then we would ask you to come and, and sit on the front row as we stand and sing.